electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Rates are edging higher again today, but this time we've also got rising stock markets and the Nasdaq leading the way with a more than 2% gain as a key reading on inflation came in a touch softer than expected, although it was still the biggest jump on record. The Fed today starting a two-day meeting. Tomorrow, they're widely expected to hike rates by a quarter point, the first hike since the pandemic. We'll look at the fallout that will have for banks and housing in particular. And oil prices, meantime, keep dropping well below $100 a barrel today as fears of a China slowdown sink in. We'll dive deeper into those concerns. But first, over to Dom Chu with the latest numbers. Hard to imagine, Kelly, that it was just six trading days ago when de- de- benchmark WTI was $130 and change. It went below $94 a barrel at one point. So big story in oil. But it's translating over into some moves within the equity market as well. We are seeing some outsized gains. And right now, by the way, this is pretty much session highs across the board for the major U.S. indices. The Dow Industrial is now up 460 some points, one and a half percent gains there. 4241, the last trade for the S&P 500, 68 handles to the upside, one and a half percent gains there. North of that, the Nasdaq composite, 12,839, 258 points, two percent upside. So the real outperformer, that trend of under and outperformance continues for the Nasdaq composite. If you take a look at a key part of the market that a lot of traders are trying to figure out whether or not there's bottom fishing to be had or whether there's still falling knives that people are trying to catch. Look at what's happening with the Chinese Internet stocks, because after a dismal several months now and a record low for the crane share CSI China Internet ETF, the ticker KWEB, we're seeing a two and a half percent bounce there today. But it's more of a mixed picture for the major U.S. listed Chinese Internet names. JD.com, six percent gains. Pinduoduo, three and a half percent, one and a half percent for Netties. But look at Baidu, down two and a half percent. So it's not wholesale just yet. So a little bit of gyration happening with that Chinese tech trade. And then on this side of things, if you take a look at some of the stocks that are really outperforming today, it's value cyclical. Think travel and leisure. American Airlines, one of the best S&P 500 performers, up seven to half. 7.5%. Norwegian Cruise Lines, 5.5% gains there. Booking Holdings up 4. And by the way, it's also semiconductors, one of those bellwethers, places a lot of traders look to towards a, for a leading indicator, possibly, of the overall market. NVIDIA and Advanced Micro, both within the top 10 best performers in the S&P, up 7, 6-7% respectively. So, Kelly, travel and leisure and semiconductors, very kind of bullish tone there. We'll see if it lasts It has been a big pullback from those recent highs that we've seen, Kel. Back over to you. Yeah, we'll take it, at least for today. Dom, thanks. Now, is the Federal Reserve about to hike rates into a recession? Is it about to cause one? Or is the U.S. economy actually running too hot right now? Steve Leisman has some answers from our latest Fed survey. Steve? Boy, those are great questions, Kelly. The latest CNBC survey finding forecasters raising their outlooks for recession and boosting their inflation forecasts as the Fed faces the quandary of fast rising prices and all that uncertainty from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here are some numbers. The average recession probabilities for the U.S. in the next 12 months put it 33 percent, up 10 points from the last survey and elevated from normal levels, which are usually around 20 to 25 percent. For Europe, though, 
Recession probability placed at 50%. The U.S. economy is still seen growing, but at a slower clip. The average GDP forecast for this year slipping by 0.8 percentage points, remaining at a slightly above trend 2.8. GDP forecast for 2023 dropping by half a point, now around 2.4%. Respondents said most of the drop came as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which also prompted them to hike their inflation outlooks. The Consumer Price Index as judged by our forecasters, seen peaking at 8.5%, and that's in the survey. But gradually declining to finish the year at a still high 5.2. That's almost a full percentage point higher than the February numbers that we had. CPI in 2023 comes down to a tamer 3.3, a rate still above the Fed's target. Now, the debate among forecasters is this. Will higher inflation create its own dynamic of a slowing economy, that actually brings down inflation, or does the Fed have to put tougher monetary policy in place to get inflation under control, Kelly? Great way to put it. So what about the balance sheet, Steve, which we haven't talked about as much lately, but what is the expectation there? Pretty aggressive, actually, Kelly. They're looking for half a trillion dollars of balance sheet reduction this year, going to $900 billion next year, and $2.7 trillion over about a three-year period. So we're at 8.8. We'll probably finish up around 9. Uh, so it'll come down to around 6, still above where it was before the pandemic, but quite a bit lower from where it is now. All right, Steve, for now, thank you. We appreciate it, Steve Leesman. Pleasure. So is the Fed making a policy mistake, or have they already made one? Let's ask a different Steve now. Stephen Rusciuto is chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Securities. Great to see you this afternoon. And let me start with... If you're in the camp that thinks the Fed is making an error by tightening here um, into what appears to be a slowing economy. Well, I think the Fed had the real opportunity of a soft landing if they had left things alone. But again, the dynamic in terms of inflation was naturally going to scare them. No central banker wants to be the one to let the inflation genie out of the bottle. So the net result is all they've done against the backdrop of their tightenings that are priced into the curve, and more will be priced into the curve after the meeting tomorrow. Um, and the energy uh, spike that we talked about earlier is the risk of a hard landing has gone up. I disagree with those 33% of the economists who say a recession uh, has gone up in probability. I don't think it has because balance sheets haven't deteriorated at all in here. And balance sheets are what really drive credit cycles and credit cycles that really drive in uh, business cycles since 1990. So we don't see that at all. But we do see a hard landing as, as an alternative scenario. What do you mean by hard landing then? A hard landing for the markets? Well, it's a hard landing for the economy, which is, you know, an economy that falls below potential GDP for several quarters and may even have one quarter of negative GDP. But it falls far short of a broad-based decline in incomes, production, orders, and shipments Got that it. define a recession. Got it. So Steve sort of framed the question as, will higher prices be their own cure for higher prices, or does the Fed need to tighten in order to keep in, or, or bring inflation down? How would you answer that question? Well, I think they needed to do some tightening, but they didn't need to do as much as priced into the marketplace. So I think there's a combination of some monetary policy tightening that is necessary, while a fiscal policy tightening is going on as well, because the budget deficit is dropping by about a trillion dollars this year. But the uptick in inflation in and of itself is an additional drag on the economy, which was allowing them to potentially get to a soft landing scenario. I think the tightenings that are being priced into the marketplace now and what will be additionally uh, priced in as we go forward in here are increasing the risk of a hard landing. 
All right. So, Steve, best guest for our investors and traders who are watching right now. Uh, dovish hike, hawkish hike tomorrow. I assume you're not in the no hike camp. Well, the market is going to take it as a hawkish hike. Right? Even, no matter what this chairman says or does tomorrow, they're going to have to admit that 50 basis points was discussed. They're going to have to admit that balance sheet reduction was discussed. And where I think the Fed would make a real policy mistake was if they would go to an aggressive balance sheet reduction. I don't care if they begin to pull back on the MBS portion of the portfolio, but going about actually pulling back on the Treasury portion of the portfolio while they're also raising interest rates, I think would be the real policy mistake environment. That's what I think could trip over themselves and create some kind of financial dislocation wow. that forces them to reverse gears quickly. All right. So elaborate on that point for just a moment, then, if you don't think they should go the route of reducing the balance sheet right away, what would that mean for the economy? Well, again, I don't mind the MBS portion coming down, and that could be anywhere from 70 to $100 billion per month. So going back to the numbers Steve laid out earlier, Steve Leisman laid out earlier in terms of the amount that people are expecting the balance sheet to go down over the next one or two years, it's very consistent with that kind of just letting the MBS portfolio row off. Uh, it's the Treasury portfolio that's much more of a concern for me because there's a lot of uncertainty that's been created in this economy. There's a lot of new financial institutions that have been created or quasi-financial institutions that have been created in this economy. And I think the system needs inherently more uh, reserves in the system to function smoothly. One of the reasons why the market movements have been so orderly in here is because of the amount of liquidity that's in the system. And I think if you had been reducing the liquidity that was in the system, you might have discovered that a lot of these market movements that we're going through and the fallout from them would have been much more contagious um, than we've been seeing. That is a fascinating take I haven't heard before. Appreciate you joining us today, uh, Stephen, to talk about it. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Stephen Rusciuto with Mizuho Securities. And a quick programming note, we'll have a very special edition of the Exchange and Power Lunch tomorrow from outside the Federal Reserve, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern time ahead of this highly anticipated rate decision. In the meantime, one welcome development for the economy is the drop in oil prices. Or is it? WTI is closing in on its 50-day moving average of around $92 a barrel. We haven't been down to that level since the first trading day of the year. We've given up most of the gains already since the Ukraine invasion, but concerns about slowing Chinese demand have been behind the recent declines. Let's bring in Pippa Stevens with the latest. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. A huge reversal with crude essentially giving back the gains from the last two weeks. As one person told me, this market has been trading exclusively on emotion, fear on the way up, and then hope on the way down, as there are now indications supply disruptions might not be as bad as once feared. Now, the trend has been lower, but we've seen heavy declines the last two days, and oil's down around 10%. Several factors are weighing ongoing talks between Russia and Ukraine, a potential demand hit in China amid lockdowns, a possible Iran nuclear deal, as well as traders who were using oil as a hedge unwinding those positions. The latest fund manager survey from Bank of America shows oil is now the most crowded long trade, overtaking tech. So for oil, we're now back to where we were prior to Russia's invasion. Oil spiked above 100 the day the war broke out. WTI then climbed up to 130.50, while Brent reached 139.26. So now, Kelly, we're down more than 30 bucks in a little over a week. It's not the, the decline from 130 that amazes me. It's the fact that we're back to where we were before the invasion. So we've we've stopped importing or we will soon stop. But the market's pricing it in Russian barrels. We're trying to figure out how to replace them. 
and the market is back to where we were before all of this happened. I mean, that's pretty shocking. Yeah, and I think it, what it really shows is that these are people who are not usually active in the energy market. All of this knee-jerk reaction, both on the way up and then this dramatic way down. I mean, these 8% volatility swings, that's not normal. And so this is people who don't actually necessarily know what's going on. We don't have new indications, and this is just trading all over the place. But I'm glad that you had that stat from the fund manager survey, because how many times have we heard people in the past couple months say, you know, look at the spread between energy and tech, 50 percentage points this year, right as it became the main consensus. Now it's gone the other way. The question is whether this reset allows for it to, you know, consolidate and, and maybe head back towards, I'm sure what Goldman and others would say is still the tightest physical market that we've had in years. Absolutely. And also, nobody wants oil at 130. I mean, yes, companies make a lot of money, but they don't want that. They have the administration on their back. They don't want that. If they can break even at 30 or $40, WTI at 80 is great. So it's not actually good for anyone. And so people are just very active in this market right now, trying to figure out where it goes next. Absolutely. Pippa, we appreciate it. Thank you, our Pippa Stevens. Coming up, a little more than 24 hours from the big Fed decision. We'll break down the names most exposed to rising rates among the banks and home builders in particular. Plus, the Hong Kong market plunging to its lowest level since 2016. Among the worries, could Chinese companies feel the sting of sanctions if Beijing offers Moscow more assistance and what it means for investing in China? And as we had to break a quick check on the markets, we're seeing gains across the board led by a one and a half percent increase for I'm almost almost two percent increase for the Nasdaq right now. S&P up one and a half percent crude down by five percent. Ten year two point one three. We're back in a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets at PGM? It's a question that over fourteen hundred investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Fed hasn't done anything on rates yet, but the market is already adjusting to higher levels. The 10-year Treasury yield hitting multi-year highs ahead of tomorrow's decision. Let's come in on two sectors bracing for immediate impact, banks and housing. Joining me now, Jeff Hart is senior bank analyst at Piper Sandler, and Ken Zener is home builder analyst at Key Bank Capital Markets. Welcome to you both. Jeff, we'll start with you. Where will we see the immediate impact of rate hikes? I mean, the, the, the immediate impact is actually good for banks and financials, right? Those are short-term rates, which is the way balance sheets are positioned going up. Uh, that, that's good for banks. The, the concern I would have had was that the pace of bikes might have been too aggressive. And if that happened, would that potentially derail economic growth? I think that's actually one of the, 
the positives of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is it kind of removes some of that uncertainty because the Fed's much less likely to, to hike too aggressively with all the uncertainty that's out there. And as we understand it, it's typically any lending banks that would benefit most from this. That typic- Would that mean that the fi- uh, regionals are often well situated for rate hikes? Yeah, I mean, I think that the banking industry in general is well-situated for, for, for rate hikes, and it tends to be skewed toward the, the shorter end of the curve. You could probably argue some of the more capital market-centric name, like the trust banks or, uh, you know, a B of A or a J.P. Morgan, maybe benefit a little bit more from the short end, so they, they might benefit first. But, yeah, I, I think definitely from the, the big guys down to the regionals, higher short-term rates is a good thing at this point. For the investment banks, you know, Goldman, Morgan, obviously, but even those with investment banking exposure, what's the market environment been like? Do you think it's a headwind or a tailwind for them? Well, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, when I say that, we're still okay now in that it's been a pretty good trading environment. Sure, that, that there may be some losses on Russian or commodity exposures, but the activity levels have been pretty good on trading. And in investment banking, debt underwriting's held up pretty well. M&A remains really robust. Equity underwriting's where we've really kind of seen things slow down. The, the good news here is the pipelines are still very strong. There's a lot of deals to get done if the market kind of settles down a bit. The bad news is if the market doesn't settle down, then a lot of those deals don't end up getting done. But I think as we sit here today, the capital markets are, are still pretty constructive for at least first quarter earnings. What about over at the Fed, where it appears that Sarah Bloom Raskin's candidacy is running into uh, a loss of support, what would that mean for the banks, for some of the regulation that may or may not be coming down the pike? Well, I, I think ultimately what, what we really need is to get uh, regulators, you know, get, get governors in the seats at the Fed so things can start moving along again. Some of the, the bank merger approval kind of delay we've had, I think, has been partially because um, seats, seats aren't as full, but certainly the more um, kind of capital and the free markets uh, favorable any any names kind of uh, any governors would be would would be a plus for for the banks and i mean you know you specifically mentioned one that there may be a little less leaning toward the free markets i mean i think that you know as long as the other what three or four that have been nominated kind of get into their seats uh, that that should play out okay for the banks your favorite names right now bank of america jp morgan is that right yeah, I mean, look, especially if the revenue environment gets tough or if credit losses start building, scale's going to mean a lot, and they both have scale. With B of A, you don't get quite as much capital markets exposure, and they're more U.S.-centric, so that would, that would be my top pick of the two. But J.P. Morgan's been fairly beat up because of some of their expense guidance, but I think the important thing is that expense guidance is investment-heavy. The environment really gets tough. That could be dialed back quickly. So I think J.P. Morgan's a little, a little too beat up. Yeah, maybe a warning there for some of the employees, but I take your point about the flexibility. What about Wells Fargo? Do you think they're close to being able to remove the asset cap? And they were, I think, the best performer last year. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, my associate Scott Seifers covers Wells Fargo, but I think the, the, our thinking there is that they're, they're moving in the right direction. And if you're looking for kind of the value bank that's moving in the right direction, that, that's, that's where you're kind of getting large cap people drawn to. Probably a little bit less so towards Citigroup, which is kind of another uh, valuation-based bank. But at the end of the day, I think Charlie Scharf and company will get things working at, at Wells Fargo. It's, it's a bit more a matter of, of when as opposed to if. Quick final word, does it matter or, or what would you say about the near-term market impact of a hawkish versus a dovish hike tomorrow um, and any headwinds that might create for the financials? You know, I, I think what we'll hear tomorrow is, you know, 25% basis hike, and I think they'll be leaving their options open, which is what they should do, and I think that's, that would generally be good for the market. I mean, it, it, it's interesting that the futures market is, I think, factoring in six or seven hikes now, but it seems in 
more of my investor conversations, investors are, are still more in the three or four hike camp. So any indication they give that maybe the hikes won't be as aggressive as the futures market is projecting would, would be a positive. All right. Jeff, thanks. We appreciate it. Thanks for your time today. Good to be on. Thank you. Jeff Hart with Piper Sandler. Let's turn now to the builders, which are down about 20 percent this year, even in the super strong housing market. Mortgage rates have been on the rise, though. Today's 30-year fixed is just under 4.4 percent. Ken Zener from KeyBank now, he just lowered his price targets on KB, Lennar, and Toll Brothers, citing the Fed tightening set to begin this week. Ken, this has been a big theme of yours, and this underperformance is striking this year. Uh, Will it come to an end here or not? Afternoon, Kelly. Thanks for having us on. We looked at within our WOW thesis, which is wall of worry, how macro concerns can supersede strong fundamentals. What we've happened has happened this year so far. Um, we do expect the home builders to maintain their weakness. That's our price target revisions, simply because the builders have never bottomed prior to a Fed tightening cycle starting. And I know the 10 years moved, but historically, the builders find a bottom roughly at the last quarter of the Fed tightening cycle. Wow. Well, this could be a two-year-long tightening cycle if the economy holds up. Yeah. And, I, you know, we've had a lot of conversations around, if you look at the builders, you know, trading anywhere from three to five times earnings, historically low valuation. Uh, the group is, you know, just a little over one times book. Uh, book value is our preferred metric because earnings, even the fourth quarter this year with rising interest rates and still rising input costs like lumber, is questionable. The fundamentals remain strong, but we do focus on the book value. Book value does reflect builders' return on inventory, and there's big differences there. That's why we have a dispersion in the valuation. But on the macro front, we cannot see a bargain opportunity before any sales in the actual end market have begun. It's just striking how awfully a lot of the housing uh, stocks are trading, the builders, you know, the lenders. And meanwhile, the flip side of it is you've got people desperate to buy a house to be able to get into this market. So where do you think uh, the fundamentals are headed over the next six to 12 months? Did we do we need this reset in order to get a healthier market long term? Well, in our WOW thesis, we do start our analytics in 1969. I would point out the $5 trillion that has ensued in the last two years has certainly helped asset appreciation, homeowners, more than renters in many ways, uh, along with the supply constraints. But there's um, a lot of, you know, interest rates are negative if you look at the 10-year minus CPI or PCE, and that is really an anomaly even compared to the 1970s how deep we are in terms of a low interest rate relative to the headline inflation. So I don't want to predict the nuances. I just think it's too early to start buying the home builders and the biases towards the downside. So as we go, tell me why you still do rank uh, NVR, I believe, as it, at least a buy, if not an overweight. Yes. NVR with a land light model and the highest return on inventory uh, stands apart from many of the builders because it's earnings. So it's trading at roughly 11 times earnings and book value, you know, four or five times because it's bought back so much of its stock already. But that earnings really is much more of a cash flow number, which they deploy in buybacks and have done so for quite a while. So it's a very steady, low risk model. We're simply looking for the best builder in a tough narrative. All right. And that is your pick. Ken, thanks for joining us to share all your thoughts today. 
Thank you. Ken Zener with KeyBank. We've got a market flash now. Check out shares of GoDaddy dropping in just the last few minutes as Google rolls out its domain service for public use after spending roughly seven years in beta. Google says it's amassed millions of customers in that time. It will initially launch this service in 26 countries, and shares of GoDaddy are down 5%. Still ahead, Apple breaking below its 200-day moving average for the first time since June. We'll look at one under-the-radar threat lurking overseas that could hurt their bottom line. Plus, a big reversal from Barclays that could signal a change in the bank's risk appetite, and we'll tell you what it means for your money. As we head to break, a quick look at the Dow heat map with Disney, P&G, and McDonald's leading the way. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Broad-based strength in stocks today ahead of the Fed's decision tomorrow. Uh, we are up 498 at the highs for the Dow. We're up 439 in the Nasdaq trying to recapture some of its losses. Here are some of the movers this hour. The airline stocks moving higher after a number of carriers raised their revenue guidance and said they've seen a travel rebound following Omicron. The move lower in oil prices also giving them a lift. As Dom pointed out earlier, American and Delta are up more than 7% today. And Peloton is jumping. It was initiated with an outperform and a $40 price target at Bernstein. The firm saying a new CEO, tighter belt, and a new supply chain will make the company an unlikely hero after its recent fall from grace. Peton just under 22, up 8% today. And shares of Tesla also moving higher. The company announcing more price hikes in the U.S. and China. Its second increase in less than a week after CEO Elon Musk said EV makers are facing significant inflation pressure. Remember, they already raised prices a lot last year. The shares are up 3% to 7.89. And as the Fed gears up to hike this this week, CNBC Pro ran a screen and found that utilities tend to outperform the S&P as rates rise. Among the top 10 performers post-hikes, NRG, NextEra, Exelon, and Duke. NRG has seen an average 11% move higher in the month after the hikes. For the full details, go to CNBC Pro. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour Ukrainian President Zelensky says that Russian strikes hit four multi-story buildings in Kyiv and killed dozens of people today. The mayor of Kyiv says that fighting back against the attacks is about more than just defending Ukraine. Unity around Ukraine is very important because we fighting not just our, for our city, we fighting right now, not just for our country. We fighting all together for our, our values, our principles. 
Meantime, Fox News says that its veteran cameraman, Pierre Krzyzewski, has died. His vehicle came under fire outside Kiev yesterday. Correspondent Benjamin Hall was also injured in the attack and remains in the hospital. And the woman who interrupted a Russian news program with an anti-war protest has been fined the equivalent of $280. No mention, though, of any prison time, but a human rights group says that it has not been able to locate the woman. And on the news tonight, the West ramping up pressure on Russia and NATO leaders get ready to meet in Brussels a week from Thursday. And the White House just announcing a few minutes ago that President Biden will attend in person. All that tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? All right, Rahel, thank you very much, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, this name has lost nearly half its value so far this year, but one asset manager is paying up for shares for the long term. We'll reveal it and the other growth names he likes. But first, China tech stocks rebounding a bit today, but the K-Web is still down more than 40% over the past month. Is the sell-off a buying opportunity despite all these headwinds? We'll dive into that next. Welcome back, everybody. Chinese stocks getting hit hard again today. The Shanghai Composite dropping nearly 5% to extend its recent losses. It's down almost 16% so far this year. And with further government crackdowns looming, the combined, combined with the current COVID case spike, the tech names, they're getting whacked especially. Didi's off 90% from its highs. Baba's down 70%. JD down by more than half. My next guest says the sell-off is revealing both winners and losers. We know about the losers. Joining me now, joining me now is Jonathan Brodsky. He's the principal and founder of Cedar Street Asset Management. Jonathan, welcome. So let, who are the winners here that you see? Yeah, so I think that uh, when you look at the sell-off that has accelerated over the last couple of days, I think for your viewership, I uh, should recognize there's actually three different components to this. The first is uh, ratcheting up, obviously, of the Omicron cases in China, which is a concern. Recently, Shanghai and Shenzhen have been shut down. Uh, that has an impact on tech names because of a lot of production that's coming out of there. And then we have the regulatory risks uh, that have been paramount now for a number of months, uh, specifically around the U.S. listed Chinese tech names, as well as the uh, data driven technology names in China. And then the third is the geopolitical risk that has manifested itself around uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And a lot of asset managers were burned by Russia in particular and are looking at the geopolitical risk in China and saying, I better sell now rather yeah. than wait to see if there's any uh, ratcheting up of those circumstances. Yeah. So these have all kind of resulted in where we are now. Which is to say you guys are saying sort of look away from U.S. listed Chinese stocks to limit regulatory exposures, avoid mega cap Chinese banks, avoid mega cap technology. So what do you want to be exposed <laughs> to here? Yeah. So I think that, you know, from our perspective, there's a little bit of a sea change that's going on driven somewhat by this regulatory shift. Uh, that's happened in the U.S., and we've seen a lot of news on that recently. Um, we're recommending our clients move their China exposure specifically to Hong Kong and the surrounding markets like Taiwan and Singapore uh, because the regulatory risks are much, uh, much more reduced there. We also think there's a lot of opportunity that's popping up in the market uh, around megatrends, for example, environmental, electrification, robotics, et cetera. There are quite a bit of opportunities, but the issue is, uh, the flows are likely to get worse as around index funds and ETFs in the United States. And therefore, the local exposure is something that we would recommend. So tell me why, you know, when I see that the Hong Kong market is at a six-year low, do you think that's warranted? Um, is it because we've seen COVID? I mean, Hong Kong has the highest death rate in the world right now from COVID, a population that is surprisingly low in terms of its vaccination rates. And then there's so many other factors going on. 
Do you get exposure now because, you know, the market has done this reset or do you wait? Yeah, so I think that comes down to kind of investors' views on the future as it relates to somewhat we talked about earlier in this conversation, and that's around geopolitical risk. You know, the question is, is there going to be a Russia-China block, which makes investing in China very difficult, or are there lots of differences in terms of economic forward-looking, she's up for renomination this year, stability in China has historically been paramount. Uh, So the sell-off, if you view it as Russia and China being quite different in terms of economic outlooks, geopolitical viewpoints, and opportunities, in our view, presents a very interesting opportunity. And when you get into the local market in Hong Kong and the surrounding areas, the dynamic of the local Chinese investors that are now moving southbound to support these uh, securities vis-a-vis what's going on in the U.S. with institutions leaving provides a lot more support. And then finally, the smaller and mid-cap names are not under the same level of regulatory scrutiny coming from the Chinese government. And remember, you know, we've seen Alibaba get itself uh, into trouble. Now we see Tencent getting itself into trouble uh, around the games and then the potential issues around WeChat payment systems. The lower you go, the less exposed you are to these issues. And the more you have an opportunity to operate independently of a lot of the scrutiny that's driving these securities down to the point that we see them right now. Your rule of thumb is almost, if you've heard of it, definitely avoid it. You know, really kind of, like you said, look for the secular trends uh, that are not exposed here. Just can can you give a final thought? I mean, people are starting to look at the performance of Chinese stocks basically since they've been available for global investors over the past 30 years, and they're seeing very poor returns. Why bother? Well, I think we talked about some of the issues that are manifesting themselves right now, but then you're also focusing on areas of the market that are, as I said, financial institutions that have significant property exposure or have government involvement. And then secondarily, as it relates to the technology companies, the valuations were pretty high, right? So on a relative basis, now that you factor in a lot of these other issues that we're talking about now, which by the way, we've been discussing with our clients for a very long period of time, adding to the high valuations, the uh, return dynamic probably wasn't as favorable as people thought of, thought it was going to be. That being said, looking forward, given the risks that are in the market and given the valuations where we are right now, on a selective basis, it looks like there's some real opportunities. All right. Jonathan, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Jonathan Brodsky with Cedar Street. Still ahead, Barclays suspending the issuance of two trading products linked to oil and volatility, what it could indicate about their risk outlook next. And tonight is the debut of CNBC's special digital series, Women in Wealth, bringing together female investors, journalists, and other experts to help women take charge of their financial futures. Join Seema Modi, along with guests including the Today Show's Gene Chatsky and Fast Money's Karen Feinerman at 8 p.m. Eastern tonight at twitter.com slash CNBC. Welcome back, everybody. Barclays halting new issuance of its exchange-traded notes tied to oil and volatility. Bob Bassani is here now with what he thinks is driving the move and what it means for those holding the products, Bob. It's a little complicated, Kelly. Uh, One of these ETNs is tied to the CBOE Volatility Index, or the VIX, as we talk about it all the time. The symbol is VXX. And another one is tied to an index of crude oil futures. The symbol is OIL, oil. That makes sense. Barclays said it ran out of, quote, issuance capacity and that it would halt creations indefinitely. Now, it's not clear exactly what that means, but it's likely the risk was getting too high for Barclays. So, 
An exchange-traded note is a debt instrument. It's issued by a bank. In the case of the VXX, the ETN tracks an index with exposure to futures contracts on the CBOE volatility index. In this case, it's a blend of the front month and the second month futures contracts. But here's the rub. Barclays may or may not own all the underlying futures. It may own derivative contracts. It may own nothing. It is likely certainly trying to hedge its positions. It only promises it will deliver the value of the index adjusted on a daily basis. While they don't say exactly why they did this, it's certain for sure the VIX did shoot up to over 35 in recent days on the Ukraine crisis. On Ukraine crisis, excuse me. It's likely a lot of traders tried to short the funds since the VIX rarely stays above 30 for any length of time. Now, this may have led to additional risk for Barclays because we don't know what they're doing to hedge their risk. You see the problem here. So what happens to the funds? Well, they continue to trade. But because there's no new shares, it is essentially acting like a closed-end fund. And like a closed-end fund, it may trade at a premium or a discount to its net asset value. In this case, it seems like it's trading at a premium. You know, Kelly, this is a big problem. With exchange-traded notes in general, we've had problems with them for years. They're not transparent. It takes the best features of exchange-traded funds, which is transparency. You know what you own when you have an exchange-traded fund. And in this case, exchange-traded note, it removes it. You don't know what exactly you're owning at the same time. What you get is a promise, and it's easy for the bank to suddenly, or any bank, to suddenly suspend creations. It's been controversial for many, many years, Kelly. Yeah, as you put it earlier there, 2% of the volume of exchange-traded products and 98% of the problems, all these ETNs and, and leveraged and inverse ETFs. Let me ask you this, Bob. Could these products exist as ETFs? Or because of their sort of inherent obligations, would, any, would they not get a sponsor who was willing to do so? No, sure. You can have you. Had, there are ETFs that exist that own straight futures contracts, uh, and there are a number of them that do. For whatever reason, banks issue these because they feel they can be profitable. Again, the key point here is that these are essentially notes that are issued by the banks. They may or may not necessarily own all the underlying products, and in some cases, they may certainly be trying to hedge them. So this is the problem, trying to figure it out. Obviously, Barclays felt they had some kind of risk here. It may be associated with the risk that they were taking when they were trying to hedge their positions against these futures contracts. We don't know. They're not telling us. So it would be helpful if we yeah. knew. But it's a problem with, with the way the product is structured. It's not a problem with the VIX or a problem with Barclays. It's just the way that the exchange traded note product itself is structured. And the la their lack of transparency uh, on top of the product's lack of transparency isn't helping right now. So we'll see if we can learn right. anything do we, more. Do we really need all these products is the question. Do we need leveraged inverse three times oil <laughs> E <laughs> ETFs, for example. Does the world really need all that? Look at the confusion of these products. It's in my create. 401k, Bob. Know. What are you talking about? No, we, you've done a great <laughs> job highlighting the risks here, especially if you're trying to hold these over the long run. Bob, for now, we appreciate it. Okay. Our Bob Bassani reporting from the NYSE. Still ahead, a lighter than expected PPI report helping stocks today. This as recent data from AAII shows bearish sentiment is at a near decade high. We have names to buy if a global recession is on the way.
Welcome back. Stocks are rallying today as crude prices fall again. The S&P and Nasdaq are trying for their first gains in four sessions. But it all comes as market sentiment is at historically low levels. According to Bank of America's March Fund Manager Survey, cash reserves hit their highest level since the onset of the pandemic two years ago. Growth optimism dropped to its lowest level since July of 2008. A majority of managers are now expecting inflation to be permanent as well. But my next guest says he's still getting a little more bullish from here. Let's welcome in David Katz. He's the chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. David, just to be clear, do you think we're going into a global recession? We do not believe we're going into a global recession. We do think we'll probably have a temporary global slowdown. The U.S. economy is going to buck that and still be pretty good. But we think if you go back to that survey, the sentiment is negative across the board. If you look at it historically, a lot of times when you get this negative, it's closer to a turning point. So we look at it as a contrary indicator. All of this cash, all of this significant concerns about inflation, acting as if it's going to be here forever. Uh, we think that a lot of these things are shorter term in nature. And we think if you have a nine to 12 month time horizon, this is a very good opportunity to be putting money to work in the stock market. Yeah, you say we think there are a lot of great and in all capital letters, great buys here. So would love to know what are the ones for you that come to mind where you think people can start buying at these levels? So we would have a barbell of some very uh, beaten down growth stocks and then some value stocks. On the growth side, we like Google, Microsoft, PayPal has been uh, killed. It's down from 300 to 100. It's at 17 and a half times next year's earnings. We think that's a great uh, price for a growth company. On the value side, we like things like Goldman Sachs, Qualcomm, TE Connectivity and Zimmer. All of them are really good companies, good long term prospects selling at 15 to 17 times earnings. Generally, if you can buy a really good company at that price, you're going to do well. The key is uh, try not to look at them over the next two weeks, next mm. month. But we do think six to 12 months uh, down the road, you're going to be very happy that you bought each of these. Although it is, you know, you're not an economist, but it's worth pointing out that your view is predicated on a view that we keep growing. The inflation problem is not as bad as feared. You almost have the Goldilocks view versus a stagflation view that has people right now getting spooked out of the stock market. You can always sound a lot smarter sounding very negative because there are lots of things out there that, that really concern us. But we generally think we're going to muddle through it. Uh, we were concerned about inflation about six months before everybody else was. We were speaking with a lot of companies, a lot of consumer product companies that had identified it as a big problem last January, February, March. So uh, 18 months ago, uh, we think that there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And by late summer, early fall, inflation is going to be trending lower, probably back to the four or five percent level. And by year end, under 4%. So we think it's manageable. The economy is going to slow down, but it's going to be slowing down from a very robust pace. It's still going to be very healthy. The companies that we're talking to are talking about a very good outlook for their earnings over the next 12 and 24 months. What would you do with energy here? So we've been wrong on energy a few different times. So uh, wouldn't read too much into our yeah. insight. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we've had energy. Uh, we sold our Chevron a little bit early uh, earlier this year, but, you know, made a very good deal of money on it. We'd say from here on energy, we think there's a good likelihood that 12 months down the road, energy prices are going to be meaningfully lower. We think energy stocks probably are going to have a, uh, a short-term peak about a week or two weeks ago. Uh, if you look at Exxon, it's it, a... Let's see, the last time it was this high was 2014. So we think if you look out six or 12 months, Exxon's going to be lower than it is today. Chevron is the best in the oil patch, but we think that it's fully priced here. Uh, so we think there are lots of places to make a lot of money in the market. We think probably the commodities uh, and the oil companies at the higher end of their trading range. So uh, not today, but into strength when you have another 
melt up, when energy prices melt up, we'd be taking profits from there and redeploying it into other areas of yeah, the market. Yeah, I love the clarity and the conviction there. Let me ask you, uh, sort of throw you a final wild card, but there's people I very much respect who are both bullish on the home builders and bearish on them right now. Would you take a position here on either the home builders or the housing market in general over the next nine to 12 months? We wouldn't. And again, we like to have a conviction and we like to understand what's going on with the company. So the home builders look inexpensive, but there are lots of crosswind. In terms of the real estate market in aggregate, we do think that rates have moved up significantly in terms of mortgages, uh, which cuts your purchasing power down by like 25 to 35 percent. It has not started to impact prices yet. But we do think there's going to be a slowdown in the housing market for sure in terms of uh, housing prices. But in terms of the home builders, we don't have a, a conviction either way. Yeah, well, that makes me feel better because that's kind of how it, you know, comes down, uh, hearing all everything that they're dealing with. Uh, David, it's going to be fascinating. Thanks so much for your time today. Uh, we appreciate your calls Absolutely. again. Some value names, some growth names for his barbell portfolio. David Katz with Matrix Advisors. Still ahead, one new law could mean big fines for Google and Apple if they don't make changes to their app stores. We have the details next. Welcome back, everybody. A new law in South Korea is targeting Apple and Google's app stores. Steve Kovac is here with more details. What do you think about this? Well, here's what they're trying to do is South Korea has said, Apple and Google, you have too much power over the app stores. Developers aren't getting their fair share. You have to stop this 30 percent cut thing or let them uh, use their own payment systems. This is the stuff we've heard for the last two years, right? Sure. People begging for ways, alternative ways, the, the Fortnite a situation, for example. Right. They just want more money out of the App Store. South Korea says, great. But here's the big but. Google has found a way to get around it. And they said, OK, we'll allow these alternative payments, but we're only going to shave 4% off that 30% we normally take. Huh. And Apple is still working out their own plan right now with South Korea, how they're going to comply. But I bet you it looks a lot like Google's. So in other words, Google's still going to take a 26% cut? Yep. Okay, so that can't possibly placate the South Koreans because it doesn't really solve the issue. Right, and we're already seeing something similar to this in the Netherlands, which has kind of a more narrow view of this. It's only for dating apps. And right now, what Apple's doing there right now is they're effectively ignoring the rules and eating a 5 million euro fine just about every week because wow. they're not complying with the spirit of the law. They're making developers put out a separate app. Now, I talked to Apple. They said they're working with uh, the Korean regulators to come out with a plan. They've bragged a lot about about how much they've been paying the developers. And, and that is true. They've cut the fees for a lot of developers, most developers, and in fact. And it's 30% the first year and then 15% Correct. after that, right? And the new rule is, after all the scrutiny they've been giving, if you're a developer and you make $1 million or less per year, 15% flat, don't worry about the 30% thing. I'm still absorbing the fact that only dating apps in which country did you Netherlands. say? In the Netherlands. Yes, very narrow. <laughs> very narrow. Um, not going to probe that further. But so the obvious implications are if this kind of movement comes to the U.S. or comes to Europe. And on that front, it still feels like a major possibility. Exactly. And that's why Google and Apple have to be worried about this. And that's why they're doing everything they can to kind of skirt around it. Because South Korea is the largest economy so far to put a law on the books just like this. And we know people here, uh, Senator Klobuchar especially, have similar laws and they're ready to get it out there. One point I think the companies have made in their defense effectively is that they are gatekeepers of an app store that allows you the trust when you download an app. I mean, we already have concerns about tracking, but think about you don't want to bring stuff onto your phone that you really don't know about. Exactly. But that's also the payment thing. And where that argument kind of falls apart is 
it doesn't apply to, say, buying toilet paper on Amazon because those are physical goods. So it's, it would be curious to hear Google and Apple's reasoning why it's more secure to buy uh, through their systems for digital goods right. versus putting my Amex in to buy the toilet paper on Amazon. Fair enough. Fair enough. Steve, we really appreciate it. Again, a big Thanks, market Mark. to follow. What's the time next uh, sort of event we should be watching? That, that Klobuchar bill. Okay. Yeah, if that makes it through, they're going to be really worried. All right, Steve Kovac, we appreciate it very Thanks, much. Kelly. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.